The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, you give us your word because our thoughts are often clouded. Uh, You give us your word because we often cannot see our own blind spots. You give us your word because you want to pour your grace out upon us. And so, Lord, pray that we would come to your word today in humility, break down our walls of defensiveness, let your spirit transform us through your word, God. And, Lord, may we live a life glorifying and enjoying you. In Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, the Mayo Clinic put out a report detailing 12 habits of highly healthy people. I don't know if you think you might fit underneath this category of 12 habits of highly effective people, but some of the habits that they listed out are fairly common knowledge, like physical activity, watching your portion sizes, taking seriously preventative care, adequate sleep, Developing strength and flexibility was one of them. But there are other ones that maybe are off your radar, ones that you would not think the Mayo Clinic would put out as 12 habits of highly healthy people. For example, one is having a close family or a close group of friends. The practice of addressing addictive and destructive behaviors in your life. The practice of forgiveness. The practice of doing new things. The practice of laughing. I love that one. The practice of quieting your mind. And finally, the practice of gratitude. And so according to the Mayo Clinic, these are 12 practices of highly healthy people. Now you may come in here today and you may feel spiritually unhealthy. You may feel spiritually sick. You may be struggling with doubt or anxiety or apathy. And if this is where you come today, you have come to the right place. Today, we want to ask the question, what are the practices uh, or habits of a healthy Christian? Or more so, what are the practices and healthy habits of a healthy church? You know, you can just Google these questions and you'll get many answers from many people. But today, we want to look by looking at the beginning of the church. And while this church was by no means perfect, as we'll discover over the next couple of weeks, They did model the basic practices of a healthy Christian community, of a healthy Christian church, of a healthy Christian life. And so if you would please open up to Acts chapter 2, we'll be looking at verse 41 through 310 today. As you turn there, just to review, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his disciples this great commission to go throughout the entire world and be his witnesses And then in Acts 2 comes the great feast of Pentecost where Jews from all over the world gather together to celebrate the harvest. And during this time, the Lord sends the Holy Spirit to break down language barriers that the gospel might be proclaimed to all of the languages that have gathered together, that they might hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then take the gospel back into their homelands. Last week, we looked at the fundamental beliefs of the faith. It was the first sermon given to the church. Do you remember three R's? There was the recognition, 
that Jesus is Lord in Christ, which was attested to by God the Father through the miracles Jesus did, but also by raising Jesus from the dead. The second R was repent and believe. These are two sides of the same coin. We talked about repenting, knowing that it was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, but believing that it was also the loving plan of God to bring us to himself. And then the final R was receiving from Jesus. And we talked about how this is a package deal, how when you receive Jesus, you receive all the blessings that come with it. You receive the blessing of salvation, the grace of the Holy Spirit, and the forgiveness of your sins. And so these are the fundamental beliefs of the church. Today, we are going to look at the fundamental practices of the church. What does it look like for those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit to practice their faith in a way that is helpful to us and glorifying to God? And again, as we look at these practices, some of them might seem obvious to you, but others might just be surprising. So let's look at these practices together. The first practice is delighting in doctrine. Now, I know when you hear that phrase, delighting in doctrine, some of you probably cringe inside because it brings back memories of a class that you took at one time that was so extremely boring that that studied the doctrines of the Bible and the doctrines of the church or whatever it might be. Or you hear the term doctrine and you think that is verbiage for theological snobs. But if you look in this passage, we see doctrine is instrumental practice of our faith. Verse 41 If you read along with me, it says, So those who received Peter's words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there's the church. And then he mentions the first practice, and it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you're here today and you're reading from the King James Version, what does it use for the word teaching? Doctrine, right? Doctrine. I think... Many times they massage that word out because so many people have negative connotations of the word doctrine. But here it's saying that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. You see, the apostles were the ones that were teaching. It's very important to note this. It doesn't just say they were committing themselves to learning doctrine, but to the apostles' doctrine. You see, there is a big difference between apostles of Jesus and disciples of Jesus. If you're here today and you trust in Christ for your salvation, if you seek to follow Jesus, you are a disciple of Jesus. You're trying to live the ways of Jesus, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus. But at the beginning, there were the apostles of Jesus. These were his direct disciples, the people that he was training and commissioning to go forth with the message of the kingdom of God. And so he commissions the apostles to go and to teach. And so they study the apostles' teaching. They delight in their doctrine. And they were able to delight in their doctrine because Jesus certified them to go and teach. Many of you don't know this, but my wife is popular amongst a secret society in Green Bay. My wife is popular amongst senior citizens. And the reason why my wife is so popular amongst senior citizens is because she teaches classes at the YMCA like active older adults and water aerobics and silver sneakers. And one of the interesting things I found out from her last night is that in order to teach silver sneakers, you had to be certified 
by an authorized trainer. And so she had to go to these all-day classes in which she would learn what were safe motions for these active older adults to make and to how to keep them from getting hurt and how to strengthen their muscles and things like that. But the only reason she could teach silver sneakers was because she was certified by an authority to do so. In the same way, the apostles received an authority from God. They were certified to go forth and teach the kingdom of God. And so people didn't just devote themselves to any teaching. They didn't just devote themselves to the teaching of the newest author or the newest fad. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Their teaching was further certified by their miracles. Look at verse 43. We read, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Have you seen that before? It isn't just that many wonders and signs were being done. Don't get me wrong. I do think God can do miraculous things through disciples like us today. He can heal people. I believe that's true. But here it's very specific that the wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Why is it so important that it was being done through the apostles? Well, just as the miracles Jesus did authenticated Jesus as Christ and Lord that we talked about last week, The miracles done by the apostles in the name of Jesus authenticated that they were certified chosen messengers of Jesus to bring forth the message of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrines, to the apostles' teachings. They delighted in it. This is a natural response of those filled with the Holy Spirit. When I was in college, I had a roommate His name's Nick. I'm actually going to get to see him in a few days, which I'm very excited about. But we became good friends, but kind of drifted apart after college. And one day I received an email from my friend Nick. And uh, he was laid off at the time. He was just trying to figure out life. And he said, hey, I kind of want to read the Bible. Where should I start? So I said, start in Matthew. Two days later, I get another email. Okay, what next? Uh, Mark? A few days later, what next? Well, just keep reading the New Testament, right? Just keep going. Week later. All right, what next? Read the Old Testament. You see, for those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, the word of God becomes precious to us. We delight in it. You know, so many times maybe we think, you know, all we need to believe is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you know that's filled with doctrine? And so God calls us to delight in doctrine. You know, there's a gentleman who's a member here at our church, and he shared his story with me, allowed me to share it with you today. But when he graduated high school, he could hardly read at all. Um, They just kind of passed him through, got him on. But then he became a Christian, and he started to teach himself how to read because he was so hungry for the word of God. We are called to delight in doctrine. Psalm 19 7 through 10 says this about the word of God. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. 
And so let me ask you, do you delight in doctrine? Not just the teachings of the New Testament, but also reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Because as you may have heard before, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You see, as we learn and we read about the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament, it helps us understand the Old Testament in a whole new way. And I could imagine this is what the early church was doing. They were reading the Old Testament with new lenses, with Jesus-colored lenses, seeing how everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And so the first practice of a healthy Christian or a healthy church is delighting in doctrine, specifically the teachings of the apostles. The second practice is fostering our fellowship. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The word fellowship in Greek is the term koinonia. You may have heard that if you've been around in Christian circles before. Uh, The old church I was at used to call their small groups K-groups, koinonia groups. But koinonia, fellowship, means participating or sharing. And so fellowship is a common participation in the faith. And notice it doesn't merely say here that they had fellowship, But it says that they devoted themselves, not only to the apostles' teaching, but they devoted themselves to fellowship. And that means that they persevered in their efforts towards fellowship. Fellowship is not something that we simply float into. Fellowship is not something that comes easy or naturally many times. Fellowship takes effort. It has to be fostered. Fellowship has to be prioritized. It has to take initiation and sacrifice to foster fellowship. See, in verse 41, we see 3,000 people become a part of the church. And then right at verse 42, we read about how they start fostering fellowship through the breaking of bread, which would be the Lord's Supper in that instance, and the prayers, which were probably written out prayers that they would recite together. As we continue in verse 44, we see them continuing to foster fellowship. Verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You know, I love it when people look at this verse and they say, this is what we should do as a church. Let's all sell everything we have, put it in a big pot and distribute it, right? And people, other people read this and we cringe because we think it means communism, right? But the big difference between communism and what you read here and in the rest of the New Testament is in communism, you are forced to sell everything. You have no personal property, and then the government takes it and redistributes it supposedly evenly, right? But what we see here is it's radically different than that. There's no demand put upon them. These people are voluntarily giving up their personal property and selling it to take care of the needs of others. Now, here's what is so remarkable about this in Acts chapter 2. Remember the setting that we are in. We are at Pentecost, right? Or at least in the, the time frame of Pentecost. And so you have an extremely diverse group of strangers that have been brought together, right? You have people from all over the known world. People of different languages, people of different skin colors, people of different values, people of different customs, In many ways, they had nothing in common. And so what happened that made them now have 
everything in common, all things in common. How could these strangers suddenly become radically united to one another? Well, I think 1 John 1, 3 tells us this. It says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, talking about the gospel, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, our fellowship is first and foremost vertical. It's with God. And true vertical fellowship always leads to horizontal fellowship with one another. In fact, the stronger our vertical fellowship is, the stronger our horizontal relationship becomes. And as we foster our horizontal relationships and fellowship, stronger our fellowship is with God. You see, the early church was able to give of their possessions sacrificially and generously and joyfully because they understood this is what God had done at the cross. That God at the cross gave his most priceless possession, his own son, Jesus Christ, so that we who were enemies of his could now be in fellowship with him. And in light of this great reality, they give joyfully and sacrificially to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ to foster the fellowship. And so what does this look like practically in our own church? What does it look like for us to have all things in common, to share our resources? Well, certainly it might mean if you know somebody that is going through a difficult time financially, you help them financially. That might happen individually. It also happens through the church. You know, this isn't something we obviously publish publicly, but we have had wonderful opportunities to help those that are going between jobs, that are having trouble paying the bills. We have had a great opportunity to to pay for people's mortgages and to pay for, for their bills and to help them get through this rough time. This is a picture of what the church is supposed to be because it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what God has done for us. Beyond financial, it might mean simply taking someone a meal when they are hurting or sick or giving your gently used clothes to an orphanage in Ukraine or filling out an Operation Christmas Child box and sending it off to those who don't know Jesus. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together, that they're worshiping together, and breaking bread in their homes, that's not the Lord's Supper, it's just simply eating a meal together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Again, you see here this vertical fellowship with God, worshiping God together, leading to this horizontal fellowship of breaking bread together and enjoying the bread, enjoying the food that God has given with joyful hearts and giving thanks to God. You know, if I had to be concise to give a definition of fellowship as I've, as I've meditated on it this week, I would say that fellowship is participating together in the enjoyment of God. Fellowship is participating together in the enjoyment of God. And this happens in many different ways. And we foster this through worshiping together, serving one another in the name of Jesus, and enjoying even food and the good gifts from God together and praising him. Many of you know my love for country music. 
It's the only genre of music that I know of that talks about loving your wife, which I appreciate. But it's also the only genre of music where my singing doesn't sound so off key. So I'm thankful for that as well. Anyway, sometimes, many times, country music does get it wrong, right? There's one uh, song by, did I hear an amen to that? I'm now offended. All right. There's one song by one of my favorite singers, Brad Paisley, and his song goes like this. It's called Me and Jesus. And in it, it says, and me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. And we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. You know, this cowboy, individualistic, just me and Jesus Christianity is pervasive in America because we're so individualistic but it's completely foreign to scripture. You see, if you're going to have vertical fellowship, you must have horizontal fellowship with one another. This is something that we are passionate about at Jacob's Well. If you've taken membership class, you probably know that one of Pastor Chad's and mine's primary duties is to welcome newcomers and connect them to fellowship groups through small groups. You know, we have 15 community groups, two men's studies, two women's studies, a marriage study, and a partridge in a pear tree. We also have half a dozen triads. We have youth group. We have a wana group. All of this is done because we want to foster fellowship. But here's the thing. As it says in this passage, you have to devote yourself to it. We can provide you all of the opportunities that you want, but you have to decide, I'm going to make this a priority in my life. I'm going to make sure this happens. I'm going to meet with people who sometimes irritate me, who sometimes get on my nerves. I know I'm busy, but I'm going to cut some things out to make sure that I have fellowship with believers, that I'm enjoying God with them, that we are feasting on God's grace together. And so here we see again, one of the healthy practices of a Christian is not only delighting in the doctrines of the faith, but fostering our fellowship with one another. The final healthy practice is loving the lost. Verse 47, continuing, second half, says this, And the Lord added to their number, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this happens because people are sharing their faith, right? Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, who they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask, ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive the alms. So all of you have been in this situation you know, for me, it was when I lived in Missouri and I would go to a St. Louis Cardinals game and I'd be walking from where we parked, walking to the game, and there would be people on the street with cans begging for money, right? This is kind of what the picture is. You know, it's the people that, that many times I would, you know, defer my eyesight. I would look away because I didn't want that awkward moment, right? But then you look here and see what Peter and John do and you see how they, how they breathe the value of God into this person, how they show how worthy they are of love and grace. And they do this simply by their eyes. Look at verse four with me. It says, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. They thought, he thought this was gonna be a big payday. 
Verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at, the, at, the, at what had happened to him. You know, Peter and John could have done what they had probably done many times before. They could have done what many other people did. They could have just simply passed by this man and nobody would have complained. Nobody would have thought twice but transformed by the love of God, the fellowship with God. They loved this man. They stepped into his brokenness to bring healing to him. Not just physical healing, but more important, spiritual healing. You see, Peter did not just love the lost indeed. He did not just have them walk, but he also loved them with word. You notice he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Not in Peter's name, but in Jesus' name. Peter's purpose in healing this man was not only to make him physically well, but to point him to the one who can also make him spiritually well. As we mentioned earlier, healing authenticated Peter's message. But what we will see next week as we continue in Acts chapter 3 is that this healing miracle, this, this mercy ministry is attached to gospel proclamation. You know, verse 15 gets right back at it. Peter, you know, he's bold. He's kind of crazy. He says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are all witnesses. And he attaches this to the miracle some way, somehow. But what we see is when this mercy ministry is lived out, when they have love and compassion on this man, it is always attached to the proclamation of the gospel. I think this is so very important for us to understand as a church today because there are so many mercy ministries who've been started up in the name of Christ and we proclaim the gospel of Christ and care for people's physical needs. But over time, they have absorbed the gospel. They've taken it away because it's too offensive. And so all they see now is that the gospel is helping people's physical needs. This is sometimes called the social gospel. Tim Keller summarizes it in this way. He says, the social gospel collapses evangelism into social improvement and says that, that is the good news, that we are going to make the world a better place. In other words, the gospel is no longer Jesus died for your sins and that he is risen to give you new life, but the gospel is just, we can make the world a better place if we just love and serve and care for one another. Again, this happens many times where the gospel message is lost from its origins. You take the YMCA, you just go to its website and it tells you that in 1984, the YMCA was started up by a guy named George Williams in England. And what happened is that many men from the rural areas were coming into the city to find jobs. And it was a dangerous place for them to be. 
And so George Williams, along with 11 of his other friends, organized the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. And what it says on the website for the YMCA is that it was a refuge of Bible study and prayer. It was a refuge of Bible study and prayer for young men seeking to escape from the hazards of life on the street. Now, it's so interesting because you compare that to the YMCA today. And I kind of laugh about this. But the YMCA is no longer young, nor nor is it just men, nor is it really missionally Christian. And I'm not even sure if it's an association. So the name is a little bit misleading. But please don't get me wrong. Like we love the YMCA. We praise God for what a blessing is. And I praise God that it's not just young people anymore or not just men. I mean, my wife wouldn't be a superstar if that happened. And whether it's an association or not, I don't know. I don't know what qualifies as an association. But what I wish was that it still had the Christian missional emphasis of proclaiming the gospel to those in need. I'm not picking on the YMCA. We, like I so said, we love it. But there are so many organizations like this where they started out loving the lost by addressing both their physical needs and brokenness and also sharing the gospel. You take Alcoholics Anonymous, that 12 step, the 12-step program just has strong Christian gospel overtones. And yet it has gone from turning to the God of the Bible to turning to your own higher power. You know, we are in Boy Scouts, not exactly sure the origins. I think many of it was Christian in emphasis. But at the last scout meeting we went to, they were praying to the great scout master in the sky. And so what you see is, is these ministries start wanting to share not only uh, the, the mercy and the love of God to help people's physical needs, but they also want to share the gospel to care for people's deepest need, their spiritual need, their eternal need. You know, this is a temptation that still exists for us today. I know many of us will say, you know what? I just share the gospel in the way I live my life. I just try to help people and love people and care for people. And that's how I share the gospel. And while that is so valuable in authenticating the gospel, it does not actually share the gospel. I mean, you're not going to take someone a cup of water and they're going to go, I trust in Jesus for my salvation. I'm a sinner saved by grace. He grants me forgiveness. You actually have to share the gospel. And so in many ways, we too are guilty, including myself, of a social gospel in which we go forth loving people, being merciful to people, caring for people, but not actually telling them about their deepest need and their greatest hope of healing. And so we are called to love the lost, both in deed, but also in word. Let me end with this. Maybe you have seen the commercials with Jordy Nelson promoting regular men's health assessment, right? On the website, it says this. Every Sunday, Jordy Nelson steps up. He steps up for his teammates and he steps up for the fans. Now it is your turn to join him. Step up for health. Step up for family. Step up for life. Because real men don't wait. The Jordy Nelson Health Assessment then talks about the different tests that you should take so you can assess the health of your body and then take the appropriate actions. Consider today a spiritual health assessment. You didn't sign up for it, but God brought you here for it. A spiritual health assessment. Look at what we've talked about today. What areas are your weakest in? What areas do you need to grow in? What areas do you need particularly to devote yourself to because they are difficult? Is it delighting in doctrine 
devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching by reading God's word on a regular basis? Is it fostering fellowship, prioritizing the participation of the enjoyment of God with other believers? Or is it loving the lost, stepping out of your comfort zone to love the hurting, not just in deed, but also in word? Whichever one it is, I just ask you to do me this favor. Tell somebody about it. Tell somebody this is an area that I need to grow in, that I need to devote myself to. Would you check in with me on this? You know, there are, these are not only the fundamental practices of our faith. These are the fundamental practices of a healthy soul that grows and delights in God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the early church. And I know it's going to get messy soon in the book of Acts. <laughs> but Lord, I thank you for this church that shows us what the fundamental practices are of our faith. Lord, I think all of us here can look at these three things of delighting in doctrine, of fostering fellowship, of loving the lost, and we can identify which one we are weak in, which one we need to grow in, which one we need to devote ourselves to. But Lord, we confess that we are unable to do any of it without you. And so God, we pray that by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would, that you would help us to grow in these areas, that you would help us devote ourselves to these things, that we might enjoy you more, and that we might glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.